0: In December of 1783, Thomas Jefferson, congressional delegate from Virginia, who recently declined going to France with John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and Henry Lawrence to finalize what would become the Treaty of Paris, which ended the United States War for Independence, was in Annapolis, Maryland, where Congress was in the process of moving out of Princeton, New Jersey. While waiting for a quorum that wouldn't come until the 13th, Jefferson caught up on his correspondence. Congress have been lately agitated by the questions where they should fix their residence, Jefferson would explain. Quote, They first resolved on Trenton. The southern states, however, contrived to get a vote that they would give half their time to Georgetown at the falls of the Potomac. We still consider the matter as undecided between the Delaware and the Potomac. We urge the latter as the only point of union which can cement us to our western friends when they shall be formed into separate states. End quote back in annapolis jefferson would soon be engaged with elbridge jerry and james mchenry to arrange a formal ceremony to accept george washington's resignation of his military commission a momentous occasion in american history which would take place on december 23rd perhaps spurred by the realization that the war was indeed won jefferson let his recipient know that some of us have been talking here in a feeble way of making the attempt to search that country that country meaning mississippi to california though he'd heard, like the French with La Perouse, that the English had advanced a very large sum of money to explore that area, though suspicious as always, quote, They pretend it is only to promote knowledge. I am afraid they have thoughts of colonizing into that quarter. End quote. Though Jefferson rightly doubts that the government under the Articles wouldn't, and likely, given the state of the post-war economy, individuals couldn't raise that kind of money, but if they could... How would you like to lead such a party? Welcome to Expeditions, a podcast around Lewis and Clark. We look at the history and the historiography of the expedition one day at a time. We are at Expeditions Pod Everywhere. That's social media, Patreon if you want to support the show, as well as our website. You are currently in Mile Marker 3, Episode. Jefferson III, Expeditious Mind. It was the first but not the last time that Jefferson would ask this question. His first nominee wasn't a traditional naturalist or explorer, each genre just coming into their own, but he was someone that Jefferson trusted, quite aggressively as it turned out. He'd be an exemplar for the type of man that Jefferson wanted to see explore the western reaches of the continent, resilient, martial, and above all, curious. Him being a Virginian certainly didn't hurt. But George Rogers Clark, older brother to William, declined to lead such a party, and as we know, John Ledyard wouldn't return to the United States. Clark wrote on February eighth, 1784, quote, your proposition respecting a tour to the west and northwest of the continent would be extremely agreeable to me. Could I afford it? But I have late discovered that I know nothing of the lucrative policy of the world, supposing my duty required every attention and sacrifice to the public interest, but must now look forward to the future support. Should Congress resolve to have the western country explored, I should take pleasure in lending all the aid in my power as an individual. It is what I think we ought to do. End quote. As we'll get to know George Rogers in great detail, it's the sacrifice to public interest to take note of for now. Despite becoming known as the Hannibal of the West for his forays in the Illinois country during the Revolution, his fall from grace was swift, and the debt that he took on sat in limbo in the Virginia legislature, where it would effectively remain. Jefferson would have known this, and perhaps he anticipated such a response. He asked the question in the middle of a run-on sentence, as if it were a dream. He had no real funding to offer and no national government support. And while he probably had heard rumors of Clark's drinking, Jefferson was a believer in the therapeutic powers of a good ramble. However, he didn't just decline. He helped Jefferson on the road to conceptualizing the future core of discovery. Quote, Pardon me when I inform you that I think our ideas of this business are generally wrong, he boldly added. Large parties will never answer the purpose. They will alarm the Indian nation they pass through. Three or four young men well qualified for the task might perhaps complete your wishes at a very trifling expense. A tolerable subsistence on their return might procure them. They must learn the language of the distant nations they pass through, the geography of their country, ancient speech or tradition, passing as men tracing the steps of our forefathers, wishing to know from whence we came. This would require four or five years, an expense worthy the attention of Congress. From the nature of things, I should suppose that you would require a general superintendent of Indian affairs to the westward country as the greatest body of those people live in that quarter. I should have no objection in serving them. End quote. So many of these suggestions would make their way slowly into Jefferson's framework. George Rogers wouldn't explore the Missouri, but his brother would. George Rogers wouldn't become a general superintendent of Indian affairs, but his brother would. George Rogers' suggestions required Jefferson to have a seat at the table, which may allow us to let Ledyard off the hook as any kind of serious planned expedition on Jefferson's part. And in late 1783, Jefferson was famous, but his future at the table wasn't inevitable. As we know, unlike George Rogers, Thomas Jefferson's fortunes deviated out of Annapolis, Trenton, Philadelphia, and toward Paris. As recounted in our last mile marker, he would inherit John Ledyard from Benjamin Franklin as Minister of the Country and came to see him as a kindred spirit, though, Jefferson later wrote, quote, Unfortunately, he has too much imagination. End quote. He was the character that George Rogers pushed back on, the solitary figure in the wilderness which he doubted would succeed at the level that Jefferson aspired toward. Yet John Ledyard, despite his misfortunes, would have agreed with Clark. I am alone in everything, Ledyard would lament, and in most things so because nobody has been accustomed to think and act in traveling matters as I do. As I said before, John Ledyard was cut from a different mold, but there is a difference in lonesomeness and loneliness. Ledyard knew how to be alone, but Langhorn, Laxman, William Brown, and Joseph Billings show that it's all about purpose and priority. Of course, there's no guarantee that he would have received the right framework, motive, or instructions had he absconded from Africa toward the United States. In London, after being returned home across Siberia by Empress Catherine II, he'd write, quote, Cruelties and hardships are tales I leave untold. I am disappointed in the pursuit of an object, on which my future fortune entirely depended. An American face does not wear well, like an American heart. End quote. Between Ledyard's demise in January 1789 and Andre Michaud's botanizing in 1793, Jefferson's fortunes changed once again when he was tapped to be the first Secretary of State. During this period, a few expeditions were conceived and executed as far as circumstances would allow. Each would imbue different elements, combined with a healthy dose of George Rogers' suggestion and a dash of Ledyard's spirit. First, John Armstrong would be recruited in 1789 by Secretary of War Henry Knox to explore the Missouri. He went alone, a la John Ledyard, but he halted outside of St. Louis. Like Ledyard, he realized he was ill-equipped to continue his journey, and felt that those who had sent him didn't really understand how chimerical this really was. He returned to General Josiah Harmar's company, joining a young William Clark back in the Ohio territory. We'll talk more about Armstrong's trek once we get ourselves down to St. Louis. Next, in 1792, the American Philosophical Society, to which Jefferson was elected in 1780 before serving as president from 1797 all the way to 1814, took up the mantle in planning its first transcontinental expedition. It stemmed from member Humphrey Marshall. He had written Benjamin Franklin in 1785 to suggest a Western expedition that included his cousin, William Bartram, and his nephew, Moses Mitchell, as a survey of American plants, Especially one that purports to span the entire continent quote, cannot be compiled at once or by one man, but it is the duty of everyone to contribute what he can toward it. End quote. Moses would write that he quote, had a design highly favorable to discoveries in view, a journey to the Mississippi westward, but have not yet been at leisure to prosecute it. End quote. On June twentieth, seventeen ninety-two, Caspar Wistar wrote Moses. Quote, I think it would be very proper to come to town immediately and converse with Mr. Jefferson, who seems principally interested. End quote. We have no clear indication on why nothing proceeded from this moment, though it's probably due to funding first and foremost, but also due to the war in and around the Ohio, among other things. And unofficially, James Wilkinson, who we will very much meet soon enough, before rejoining the military, was a traitor and, under his license with Spain, who controlled the Mississippi River and New Orleans, sent Philip Nolan on several excursions before he would strike out on his own. Nolan is a mythic figure, a freebooter, trader, horse thief, filibusterer, all depending on your own views, which we'll explore later. He would provide Wilkinson with an early map of Texas, though it's lost, as well as corresponding with Jefferson, prior to his being killed. These forays would get us closer to the core of discovery. A combination of military, monetary, and mysterious would go a long way. Before Jefferson sat at the head of government, and through persuasion and intrigue, was able to secure the monetary aspect of the Lewis and Clark expedition, it's arguably the instructions delivered to Meriwether on June 20th that ensured his and Clark's men's success. But those didn't come out of a vacuum. His first set of instructions were for Andre Michaud, which we'll examine deeper with Lewis's on June 20th. So set your calendars. At the close of our last mile marker, we left as Michaud was providing the APS with his observations on the proposed Western expedition. And unlike Moses Marshall, this one would get funded and underway. Andre Michaud had been in America for nine years. He'd originally been sent by the king to North America in order to collect plants for the depleted forest of Rambouillet, just southwest of Paris. He would ramble around Hudson Valley, down the spine of the Blue Ridge, and the swamps of Florida, before making his home in Charleston, South Carolina. As Bernard DeVoto notes, his proposed route to the Pacific, which, quote, harks back to Carver and Rogers and beyond them to Charlevoix, is significant to the utmost. In 1793, the existing knowledge is committed to the Missouri as the best and the American way west. End quote. His tenure as king's botanist would end when there was no king, but new opportunities presented themselves simultaneous with his expedition west. Edmond Charles Genet, known as Citizen Genet, arrived in South Carolina in April of that month, and one way or another, André Michel was drafted into French designs out west. He would depart Philadelphia on July 15, 1793, just before the news of Gray's discovery of the river he had called Columbia. And in between botanizing as he went, Michaud met with figures of the new state of Kentucky, including George Rogers Clark, in September, which we'll explore when the time comes. For now, Michaud makes it as far as St. Louis, and while his work was nothing to scoff at, he never crossed the Mississippi, and the dream of the Pacific would lie dormant for roughly another decade. And it certainly wouldn't help that a week into his journey, on July 22nd, as he, quote, started from Bedford and breakfast at a place four miles distant, where the Pittsburgh road divides into two, and the rain compelled us to stop and sleep only 12 miles from Bedford, all the way across the continent, Alexander Mackenzie, in a paint made from vermilion and bear grease, wrote on a large rock, Alex Mackenzie, from Canada, by land, 22nd July. 1793. In the summer of 1805, as Lewis and Clark were finishing the grand portage around the falls of the Missouri and today's Great Falls, Montana, still pushing toward the Pacific, Thomas Jefferson's eldest granddaughter, Anne, replied to her grandfather, who was still at the president's house. It was a typical letter of the era, filled with news and observations in a world before phones and the internet. Jefferson no doubt enjoyed her updating him on the state of the garden, the dwindling supply of ice for the summer, and her opinion on the new paint job. Perhaps he chuckled when Anne felt the need to slip in some shade on her little sister Ellen, five years her junior. Quote, She is the laziest girl I have ever seen and takes the longest to dress of anyone I know. Before a quick adieu and a request to subscribe herself as his most affectionate granddaughter, another dig at Ellen? Sandwich in the Middle, however, was an intriguing gift that had arrived from a surprising source. Quote, they showed me a cane which they had sent you. It is a very handsome one, but I hope you will never have the occasion for it. It is made of fishbone, I believe, as it is too long to have been the horn of any animal. Although it has that appearance, it is capped and painted with gold, very handsomely embossed. End quote. Apparently, Anne was under the impression that they was Napoleon Bonaparte emperor of France. However, when Jefferson returned and inquired further, he found that it was actually sent by Norfolk physician and wine merchant, John F. Oliveria Fernandez. Jefferson apologized for the later reply to thank him for the exquisite gift. In his reply to Jefferson, Oliveria Fernandez wrote that he hoped, quote, it might be a useful companion in your retired and rural excursions at Monticello, end quote. No doubt we can see Jefferson looking down at the cane's golden caps and rhinoceros horn, remembering Fernandez's hope that your love of natural history would render so rare a production of the animal kingdom acceptable to you. The cane, which Jefferson called the most elegant thing of the kind I have ever seen, would find its way into his cabinet of curiosities, before being willed to James Madison, who upon his death bequeathed it to Jefferson's grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph. But for now, we can imagine Jefferson's walk across his property, looking into and beyond the Blue Ridge, perhaps wondering what it become of Lewis and Clark.